Abraham is functioning as the dividing rod of humanity. As he moves through their midst, people position themselves for blessing or cursing by how they respond to Abraham. He is the sword of division, whether he knows it or not. Jesus, on the other hand, knew it very well. He said in Matthew 10, 34-35, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus understood himself as the ultimate sword of division. He knew that he would move through families and nations and redivide the lines of human society. And he knew that how people were towards him would determine who people would be before God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Abraham is a sword of division, whether he knows it or not. And he doesn't appear to know it, but it is a part of what this story is teaching. And it's a theme from the Old Testament that is picked up and played out climactically in the story of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's another one of those themes and types that we've been learning about as we make our way through these foundational stories. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 20. This is a very odd chapter. In a sense, it seems like something we've read before. It sounds an awful lot like chapter 12 when Abraham went down to Egypt and lied to Pharaoh about Sarah, his wife. Well, here he's lying again, uh, once again, trying to protect himself by claiming that Sarah is his sister rather than his wife. Now, some liberal scholars try to deal with this repetition by claiming that this is just another version of the same story. They think of Genesis as having been put together by an editorial team and That team was stitching together various oral traditions related to the patriarchal family, and they suggest that there were two separate versions of the Abraham is a big fat liar story, and the editors mistakenly put them both into the finished narrative. But why couldn't this have happened twice? Remember, the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. It is the story of bad guys that need Jesus. The Bible is not interested in collecting stories about heroic people. It is interested in teaching us about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. And if that's true, and I think it is, then I think we should be asking, what does this story say about those things? I think it says that faithful people often struggle for a long time with certain sins. I think it says that just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you have instant victory over all your various problems and challenges. I think it says that sin has a way of festering and hiding in our deceitful and fallen hearts, and God has a way of designing challenges that bring our sin to the surface where it can be exposed, repented of, and treated with the fresh application of God's truth and mercy. So I think that's why this story repeats. I think it repeats because like a dog returning to its vomit, we tend to circle back around on our own sin and stupid. But thanks be to God, the Lord is patient and abounding in mercy. 
And thanks be to God, the Lord is committed to protecting and preserving the line of promise. I think that's another reason why this story has been preserved in the scriptures. One of the things that we will notice as we read through the Bible is that there is an ongoing battle, a perpetual enmity between the serpent and the seed, just like God said there would be back in Genesis 3.15. Time and time again, the devil attempts to kill or corrupt the seed of promise, and time and time again, God prevents him from so doing. The devil wants to kill Jesus in the womb, you might say. And these battles occur at multiple points across the Old Testament timeline. Revelation 12 in the New Testament tells this story in the form of a vision, the vision of a dragon that makes war upon a woman about to give birth to a child. Well, the woman there represents the covenant community. The dragon is the devil. And the point is that the devil has been attacking the woman, the covenant community, the carrier of the seed, the vessel of the promise all across the Old Testament storyline. So the Old Testament is the story, really, of battle after battle between the serpent and the seed. It is the story of rescue after rescue as God graciously intervenes on behalf of his promise to redeem. That's why this story feels repetitive. Because the main characters haven't changed. Abraham is still the carrier of promise. Abraham is still a sinner. And the devil is still smart enough to attack him at his point of greatest vulnerability. That's why the story sounds like something we've heard before. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, some people stumble here over the fact that Sarah at this point is very old. Why would Gerar want her as his wife? Well, again, we have to remember that this story comes to us from the time when the age spans were decreasing after the flood. Back in Genesis 12, when we were doing the podcast there, I quoted Derek Kidner as saying, Sarai's 60s would therefore presumably correspond with our 30s or 40s, and her 90 years at Isaac's birth with perhaps our late 50s. All right, so... Sarah here would look like a woman in her 50s. Well, Haley Berry is a woman in her 50s, and lots of people still consider her attractive. But I think it's also important to remember that marriage in those days had a lot less to do with physical attraction. It was more often about political and social alliances. Abimelech may have wanted such an alliance with Abraham. We remember that Abraham was known in the region for military prowess and economic favor, So he may not have cared how old Sarah was. The text doesn't actually say why he wanted to marry Sarah. And we shouldn't import our 21st century views on marriage into an ancient cultural context. We pick up the story again in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? 
Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hand, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Here we see God intervening to protect the purity of the line of promise. We have to remember here that Sarah is already pregnant, though she's obviously not showing. And we remember in chapter 18, she didn't even realize she was pregnant, but God said that she was. So if she had stayed in Abimelech's household for any length of time, there would always have been suspicion that the child of promise was actually the child of an immoral and adulterous affair. So God acts immediately to extricate Sarah from the position that Abraham's weakness and dishonesty have put her in. God moves in power to protect the line of promise, and Abimelech recoils from his experience of that power. He he protests that he is the innocent party here, and he makes it clear that he didn't know who she was, and he has not touched her in any case. He's more than happy to give her back to her rightful husband. Verse 8 says, So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother." Again, we see that Abraham takes refuge in deceit rather than trusting in the Lord. You almost get the impression that he has just become used to this lie, that he told it whether he needed to or not, and then got trapped. And again, we are reminded here that for a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, there are higher concerns than strict factual accuracy. We we have to set a higher bar than that. We have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and we must be content to let the chips fall where they may. Thankfully, God is highly invested in the safety of Sarah and Abraham. So Abraham need never have compromised in the first place. The story continues in verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So here we see that there is dynamic power at work in 
Abraham, irrespective of his weakness and frailty. Abraham is, or rather Abraham embodies, the principle of blessing. Here we see Genesis 12, 3 illustrated. In Genesis 12, 3, God had said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So how people are toward the seed determines who people are before Almighty God. Abraham is functioning as the dividing rod of humanity. As he moves through their midst, people position themselves for blessing or cursing by how they respond to Abraham. He is the sword of division, whether he knows it or not. Jesus, on the other hand, knew it very well. He said in Matthew 10, 34-35, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus understood himself as the ultimate sword of division. He knew that he would move through families and nations and redivide the lines of human society. And he knew that how people were towards him would determine who people would be before God. He said that in John 5, 23 to 24. He said, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in me who sent me or believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, Jesus is the ultimate sword of division. He is the embodiment of the principle of blessing and cursing. And what is so interesting is that in the New Testament, Jesus says that his people, his disciples, carry that principle of blessing into the world on his behalf. He says in Matthew 10, verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So there is a principle of division and blessing inside Abraham. We see that promised in Genesis 12. We see that illustrated in Genesis 20. When Abimelech was threatening Abraham's seed, even though he didn't know it, the curse of God fell on him and his household. But when Abimelech removed that threat and blessed Abraham, then the curse of God was lifted from him and he was blessed. All right, so see that, hear that right? See that line stretching all the way to Jesus. Hear Jesus say again, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is the ultimate seed of blessing. Jesus is the ultimate sword of division. As God's people carry the message of Jesus through the world, we effectively create the new humanity simply by how people respond to who we are and what we carry. Now, this is not fancy exegesis. This is Matthew 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats. How does Jesus divide humanity at the final judgment? On what basis, right? How people have responded to him. But some people will say, but when did we ever meet you, right? When did we ever even have the chance to respond positively to you? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, 
you did it to me, Matthew 25, 40. Let me read Matthew 10, 40 one more time. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Are you seeing this? There, there is a principle of division and blessing in the Bible. It is introduced in Genesis 12. It is illustrated in Genesis 20 and then in many other subsequent chapters. And it climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is testified to and transmitted by the body of Christ on the earth. And one day it will divide all of humanity as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. So listen very carefully. Who you are toward the people of God is who you are toward the seed of God is who you are toward God himself. Old Testament and new, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, you said something there I want to go back to if I can. You said who you are toward the people of God is who you are toward the seed of God is who you are toward God himself. Unpack that for us a little bit. Are you saying that being nice to Christians will earn your salvation or being mean to Christians will cost you your salvation? No, I wouldn't quite put it that way, but I would say that everywhere in the Bible we see God identifying with the people of promise. So, for example, when Saul, who later becomes Paul in the New Testament, was persecuting the Christians before his conversion, he was arrested by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9.4. But Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus was already up in heaven by this point in the story. Saul was persecuting the church. But to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus because Jesus identifies with the church. And that's the flip side of the story of the sheep and the goats. There, in a positive sense, Jesus says that Whatever good you have done for his people, the least of these my brethren, he reckons as having been done unto him personally. He says in Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So the idea there is that Jesus so closely identifies with his covenant people that whatever you do to them for good or ill, you do to Jesus himself. And however you are disposed toward the people of Jesus is how you are disposed to Christ himself. But again, that doesn't mean that you can earn salvation by doing nice things for Christians, does it? No, and that's an important distinction. In the story of the sheep and the goats, everyone was already a sheep or a goat at the beginning of the story. So they didn't become who they were by doing these things. They revealed who they were by doing these things. Jesus is saying that saved people sense the seed of God in their fellow believers and they instinctively reach out in love and compassionate care. Whereas unsaved people don't make that connection. They can't make that connection. Therefore, they don't reach out in those same ways. The Apostle John said this in his epistles. He said, 1 John 3, 14 to 15, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John says the fact that you are drawn to love and care for fellow believers shows, proves that you're a real Christian. There is a principle of magnetism in you that causes you to reach out in love and concern for them because you recognize the seed of God in them. So that doesn't make you a Christian, but John says it does show you are a Christian. Now, on the other hand, John says that if you aren't a Christian, then you tend to react with hostility toward the children of God because of the seed or spirit that is in you. All right, so practical question here. What if one of our listeners thinks they're a Christian? They love Jesus, but they, for whatever reason, are not connected to a church. Uh, They're not serving the body of Christ in any tangible, practical way, and they're not active in relationship with a community of believers. What should they be taking away from what we're talking about today? Well, maybe it would just be safest to follow the Apostle John here. He wrote 1 John to provide assurance to the people in his churches. He said that he wrote this letter so that they may know. And one of the ways he told his people that they could know that they were saved is by reflecting upon the quality of their love and care for one another. So flipping that, I would say, if there is no quality or quantity to your love and service for fellow believers, then at the very least, you should be concerned. You should probably be lacking in assurance. After all, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 34 to 35. And he also said, this is Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So Jesus said, I command you to love one another. And he also said, Don't bother claiming to have a relationship with me if you aren't doing what I told you to do. So I think I would say to that person, I can't say for sure that you're not a Christian, but you can't say for sure that you are. The evidences predicted in the scripture are not currently manifesting in your life. So I would recommend addressing that. Begin to love, serve, and obey Jesus by connecting in loving and faithful community with other believers. Because Jesus identifies with them, and therefore, as the Bible seems to indicate, who you are toward them is who you are toward him, for better or for worse. Mm, All right, that's really good counsel. And I know we're going to hear more about that in the weeks and episodes to come. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 